I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Hippocrates said, let food be your medicine. Companies have made it a commodity. Is processed food killing us? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Robert Lustig's latest book is titled Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. The point is, it's not what's in the food that matters, it's what's been done to the food that matters. And you can't figure that out from any nutrition facts label. Dr. Lustig says that obesity isn't the problem. Rather, it's a symptom of the problem. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how your diet is killing you slowly and what to do about it. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, there may now be a treatment to help ease some of the symptoms of long COVID. It's estimated that between 10 and 30 percent of those infected with the virus continue to experience persistent symptoms for many months after recovery. Israeli scientists report that hyperbaric oxygen therapy eases brain fog and some of the other symptoms, such as fatigue, depression, and pain. This randomized controlled trial included 73 patients. Patients receiving active treatment got pure oxygen in a pressurized chamber. Although the results are promising, the trial is small, and this approach needs confirmation. Health experts have known about monkeypox for decades. So long as it was only causing problems in African countries, many public health authorities ignored it. Now that it's circulating in Europe, Asia, and the Americas, they're scrambling to catch up, and they are unfortunately behind the curve even though there are many hundreds of cases in the U.S. Part of the problem is that we don't know exactly how many Americans are infected because testing is cumbersome and hard to access. Although there is a vaccine that can help prevent infection, it's not been used extensively in Africa. Even in the U.S., most people who might benefit from vaccination have not been immunized. The virus is already spreading rapidly, and implementing plans to get ahead of it will be challenging. France is not the only country where people love ham and cured meats, but the French charcuterie industry has just received a blow. French health authorities have confirmed an earlier evaluation from the WHO that nitrates used in the curing process increase the risk for colon cancer. French ham is not the only cured meat that contains nitrates. American bacon, Spanish chorizo, German bratwurst, and Italian salami are in the same boat. Unfortunately, reducing nitrates would also greatly reduce shelf life and increase the risk of food poisoning. Consequently, the industry has some difficult adjustments to make. When you sit down to enjoy a meal, do you usually reach for the salt shaker? A study of half a million people participating in the UK Biobank found that those who add salt most frequently may be shortening their lives. Researchers analyzed data from 501,379 participants who completed a questionnaire at baseline. 
It included a question on how often they add salt to foods, not counting any salt added during cooking. Those who said they frequently add salt at the table also tended to have higher levels of sodium in their urine. The scientists had nine years of follow-up data that included 18,474 premature deaths. Those who were most likely to add salt to their food were about 28% more likely to die during that decade. There's one big caveat, though. This connection is strongest for people who don't consume much in the way of fruits and vegetables. The scientists calculate that a 50-year-old woman who doesn't eat much produce shortens her life expectancy by about a year and a half if she adds salt to almost every meal. Phthalates are used to produce countless convenient products such as cosmetics, solvents, and plastics. Perfumes, antiperspirants, nail polish, shampoo, and hair gel often contain phthalates. Soft plastic food containers and wraps may also contain phthalates that leach into the food itself. As a result, nearly every American has phthalates in their blood and urine. Previous research suggested that phthalates might be acting to disrupt hormone balance. Now a study shows that women exposed to multiple phthalates during pregnancy are more likely to deliver their babies early. The researchers conducted a meta-analysis of 16 studies, including more than 6,000 pregnant women in the United States. 9% of them delivered their infants at least three weeks before their due date. Those with the highest concentrations of certain phthalate metabolites were about 15% more likely to have a preterm delivery. Scientists saw the closest connection between phthalates and nail polish and cosmetics, but they also recommend avoiding food wrapped in plastic or provided in plastic containers and eating fresh, home-cooked food to reduce phthalate exposure. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. One of the acknowledged pillars of good health is a well-balanced diet. But what does that mean? Americans love processed food, from pretzels and potato chips to cookies, donuts, and macaroni and cheese. Are these foods killing us slowly? To find out, we turn to Dr. Robert Lustig. He is a pediatric neuroendocrinologist and a member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also a member of the Pediatric Obesity Devices Committee of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. His book is Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Robert Lustig. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. It's been uh, too long a time. Yes, indeed. Dr. Lustig, your book, Metabolical, rhymes with diabolical. May we assume that was not accidental? No, by no means was it accidental. Uh, In fact, metabolical is a portmanteau. You know, two words crushed together of metabolic, which is the workings of the body, and diabolical, which is the workings of big food, big pharma, and big government. You point out in this really important book, which I hope everyone will read, that you can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. So, Dr. Lustig, what is the primary health problem facing Americans? 
So everyone thinks that it's obesity. And God knows obesity has been going up for the last 40 years, ad nauseum, intractable, uh, continuing to, you know, rear its ugly head everywhere and in every age group. No argument that that is true. The question is, is that the cause? And I would argue, and I do argue in the book, that in fact, obesity is a symptom of the cause in the same way that high blood glucose is a symptom of the cause, in the same way that high blood pressure is a symptom of the cause, in the same way that heart disease is a symptom of the cause, in the same way that type 2 diabetes is a symptom of the cause. In fact, we haven't even come close to the cause. The cause is not even known to most doctors. It is underneath. And the reason is because these various diseases obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, which cost 75% of healthcare dollars today, and they're all going up, and there's no cure for any of them. The reason is because all of them are actually manifestations of eight subcellular pathologies within the cell that we as doctors can't get to. You can't get to them? We can, but we can't get to them with medicine. Doctors can't get to them, but people can. Well, can you tell us a little bit about these pathologies? That They wouldn't necessarily be pathologies if they weren't dysfunctional, right? That's right. I mean, so when these eight pathways are working right, you'll be playing tennis at 110. If these pathways are working wrong, you'll be in your wheelchair at age 40, sucking down uh, some Ensure, waiting for your next stroke on, on dialysis. You know, it's your choice, as it were, except it's not your choice. And the reason it's not your choice is because the food is what puts you in that wheelchair. So unless you fix the food, you're not fixing anything. And that's the whole point of the book, is that all of these diseases that I just mentioned, none of them are druggable. They're all foodable. And the reason is because food will actually make those eight subcellular pathologies work right. Or the processed food will make those eight subcellular pathologies work wrong. Well, Dr. Lustig, we're going to talk in a moment about the hateful eight or the grateful eight, and how food affects them. But first, I, I, I want to ask you this, because changing beliefs is really, really hard. And it seems like the prevailing wisdom on the part of both health professionals, your colleagues, and the public at large, disease is genetic, and therefore inevitable. Mom had diabetes, I'm going to get diabetes. Dad had a heart attack when he was 48. I'm at a high risk of a heart attack when I'm 48. And, and during the pandemic, we heard all about comorbidities. Half of Americans might be especially vulnerable to COVID-19 because of pre-existing conditions. So how do we change that prevailing belief? Because it is it is entrenched. 
It is. And, you know, part of the reason that medicine has been led down this, you know, shall we say, alternate path over the last 50 years is because people do believe that all of these diseases that I've just mentioned are genetic. And in some cases, they are. And I'm not saying that there's no genetic component. There is. There is a genetic component. If you actually look at the GWAS studies, the you know genome-wide association studies, basically 15% of all chronic disease can be traced back to genetics. But that means 85% is due to what they call in the field dark matter, which actually means environment. So, Virtually every one of these genetic predispositions can be mitigated by changes in diet. Let me give you an example. Alzheimer's disease. Everyone is deathly afraid of Alzheimer's disease, and for good reason. No argument. And there is a genetic predisposition called ApoE4. And if you have two ApoE4 genes, your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease is nine times greater than the general population. No argument. All true. So that would say this is genetic, right? Well, in fact, number one, nine times greater than the general population does not mean it's a death sentence, does not mean everyone with double ApoE4 gets it, number one. And number two, it turns out if you fix your diet, you can mitigate that risk uh, you know to a, a great extent at least 50% of that risk can be mitigated by fixing your diet early every one of these genetic predispositions can be mitigated by dietary alteration if you know what you're doing that is really exciting news dr lustig and i'm thinking that a lot of our listeners as well as i myself want to know, okay, so if I want to avoid Alzheimer's disease, how do I fix my diet? (laughs) Indeed. So the short answer is get the insulin down. Insulin is the bad guy in this story. Insulin resistance is at the uh, center of virtually every one of those eight diseases that I just mentioned, and it is also a manifestation of the eight chronic subcellular pathologies that we're about to discuss. So insulin is the bad guy, and anything that gets your insulin down is going to help mitigate all of these diseases, including Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Lustig, let's run through those hateful eight A lot of people don't know what you're talking about when you say things like mitochondrial dysfunction or membrane integrity. Tell us very quickly, what are the eight and why are they so important? So I call them the hateful eight or the grateful eight, depending on what you do with them. If you're doing them right, they're the grateful eight. If you're not, then they're the hateful eight. First, glycation. So this is why you paint Um, barbecue sauce on your ribs before you grill them to get that nice brown color. All of us are browning all the time. The question is how fast. The faster you brown, the quicker you die. Second, oxidative stress. So your cells release little hydrogen peroxides just from standard burning. And there are other things that can make it worse, like inflammation. Well, those hydrogen peroxides can kill off bacteria, but they can also kill off your cells. and They can cause significant cell damage. 
Number three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Your mitochondria are the energy burning factories inside your cells. If they're not working right, you're not processing energy properly and it can either cause your cells to be starved or it can cause toxic metabolites to accumulate. Number four, insulin resistance. Like I said, insulin's the bad guy in the story. Got to keep insulin down. If your body's not responding to the signal, what does your pancreas do? It makes more to try to force the cells to do its job. The problem is that causes a growth message to all of these cells. And, you know, for instance, if you're growing your coronary arteries when you're 55 years old, that's a really bad idea for heart disease. Number six, inflammation. Now, obviously, inflammation is good when it's killing off a bacteria, but it's bad when it's killing off you. And one of the primary sources of inflammation is in your GI tract. Number seven, methylation. So there are certain metabolites that occur during normal amino acid processing. One, for instance, is called homocysteine, and you've got to get rid of it or you get heart disease. Uh, Folate is a primary driver of that process, but you might have a problem with an enzyme called methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, meaning that your folate's not working and your homocysteine levels are high and you're going to get disease because of it. And there are things you can do about that if that's the case. And then number eight, which is kind of the all-purpose one, is called autophagy. This is garbage night for the cell. Your cell, over the course of the day, creates all sorts of toxic metabolites and dysfunctional uh, organelles, for instance, bum mitochondria and protein aggregates and all sorts of things that have to get cleared out. Well, it gets cleared out through a process called autophagy. If that process is interfered with in any way, then you're not going to be able to clear it out. You're going to be Mm -hmm. basically building on sand and your cells are actually going to become more dysfunctional. So autophagy is essential. And autophagy Mm -hmm. is what sleep is. That's autophagy for your brain. So if you don't sleep, you get dementia. You are listening to Dr. Robert Lustig, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He is author of the new book, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. After the break, find out more about metabolic syndrome and why it's important. Why is it so difficult for doctors to diagnose metabolic syndrome? How would you tell if you have it? Dr. Lustig explains how to counteract this problem with your diet. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy podcast is sponsored in part by Kaya Biotics. K-A-Y-A Biotics offers the first probiotics, which are both certified organic and hypoallergenic. All probiotics are produced in Germany under laboratory conditions with high-quality ingredients and under strict regulatory oversight. The three available formulas are created for very specific purposes, such as strengthening the immune system, fighting yeast infections, and helping with weight loss. To learn more about Kaya Biotics probiotics and the important topic of gut health, you can visit their website, kayabiotics.com. That's K-A-Y-A biotics.com. Use the discount code PEOPLE for $10 off your first purchase. (laughs) 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products made in Germany. K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. Also by Verizana, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Now with an annual health club plan. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. Today, we are discussing how food affects our metabolism. What we eat has long-term consequences for our health. It's not just what's in the food as much as what has been done to it. If you can't pronounce the words on the package label, maybe you should put it back on the shelf. Our guest is Dr. Robert Lustig, a pediatric neuroendocrinologist. Dr. Lustig is the chief science officer of the nonprofit organization Eat Real, dedicated to reversing childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes by bringing real food into schools. His new book is Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Dr. Lustig, a lot of our listeners have heard the term metabolic syndrome. Why is it important? Why do doctors have a hard time diagnosing and dealing with it? Right. So first of all, most people equate metabolic syndrome with obesity. And this, again, is completely wrong. And, I, you know, this is what we have to debunk. There are three fat depots in the body. Three. The first one is the obvious one, the subcutaneous fat, the, if you will, big butt fat, okay? The part of the uh, fat, you know, the depot that is cosmetically uh, undesirable, but metabolically is actually inert. This is where your body wants to put excess energy for a rainy day, is in your subcutaneous fat. And as long as it's there, it's not causing that much of a problem. And in fact, your subcutaneous fat can grow by upwards of 15 to 20 kilograms before you will end up seeing any form of metabolic disturbance. So the subcutaneous or big butt fat is not the problem. The second fat depot that matters is called the visceral fat or the belly fat. Now there, even a four to five pound weight gain will cause significant health problems. And the thing that drives that belly fat is cortisol, stress and cortisol. So you can be losing weight, but you can be gaining visceral fat. And that's what happens in chronic depression. Patients with chronic depression eat less, they lose weight, but they gain belly fat, which makes them metabolically more vulnerable. So that belly fat is way worse than that subcutaneous fat. And then finally, the third depot, which is the most important, is the liver fat. Now, the liver can only accommodate about 200 grams of excess fat. That's less than half a pound. And if you go above that, your liver is going to start being dysfunctional. And if your liver doesn't work right, that means you have insulin resistance. You have liver insulin resistance. And that means your pancreas, which makes insulin, has to make more to make the liver do its job. And that raises insulin levels all over the body. And that causes all of these chronic metabolic diseases that we've been speaking about. 
And the problem is that a half a pound of fat won't appear on the scale. And you don't know you have it because it's not obvious. And the fact is your doctor may not know you have it either. And so this liver fat, and we now know that 45% of Americans now have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, N-A-F-L-D. This is a disease that had never even been seen before 1980, and now 45% of Americans have it. You want to talk about pandemics? This is the pandemic, because 45% of Americans and 25% of the rest of the world has fatty liver disease when it never did before. Prior to 1980, if you saw fat in the liver, it was because of alcohol. But you know what? 20 20 to 25% of kids have fatty liver disease. They don't drink alcohol. So they get the diseases of alcohol without the alcohol. And the reason? Because they have fat in their liver. And the question is, where did the fat come from? Well, that's a good question. Where is it coming from? Well, it's coming from two places. The most important place is sugar. Sugar is metabolized in the liver to fat. Now, this is new data that's come out, say, in the last 10 years or so. It was the basis of the book I wrote previously called Fat Chance, Uh, beating the odds against sugar processed food, obesity, and disease. And at that point, we sort of knew that liver fat was really important. But what we didn't understand was that metabolic syndrome hinged on liver fat, on this liver fat being the problem. And so the sugar that you consume, normally you would think it would get metabolized to energy. You would be wrong. It goes to the liver. The liver gets overwhelmed, can't process it, and the liver then turns that sugar into fat in the liver. And it does it the same way it does it with alcohol and causes fat accumulation the same way as alcohol. And that's why children get the diseases of alcohol without alcohol. Type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease used to be the diseases of alcoholics, and now they're the diseases of five-year-olds. So this is the biggest problem. It is not the only cause of liver fat, but it is by far and away the most important, and it is the one that children are exposed to, and it's the one that the food industry takes advantage of because they put sugar in everything, and it's the one your grandmother is a pusher for. Well, is there any way that people can tell if they have fatty livers or if they have metabolic syndrome? Yes, absolutely. So, In chapter nine of my book, I actually give everyone the tools that they need to be able to diagnose themselves because often their doctors don't know. Let me give you an example of why they don't know. The cheapest, safest, but least sensitive method for determining metabolic syndrome is your waist circumference. All right? It doesn't cost anything. All you need is a tape measure or a belt. If you're an adult male and your waist circumference is over 40 inches, or if you're an adult female and your waist circumference is over 35 inches, chances are you have metabolic syndrome. And the reason is because that correlates with both visceral and liver fat. But again, it's not sensitive. The most sensitive cheap test is a test that you get on your chemistry panel when you go to the doctor, and it's called an ALT. 
alanine aminotransferase. Now, this is a test that's been around forever. It had a different name back in the 70s. It was called SGPT, or uh, and don't worry about what that stood for. They, they changed the name, but it's the exact same test in the same assay. Now, here's the problem. When I entered medical school in 1976, the upper limit for an ALT was 25. Today, the upper limit for ALT is 40. Same test, same assay. Why did the upper limit change? Good question. Well, this is exactly what's wrong. So it turns out the way you determine a normal range of any given blood test is you take a whole bunch of people who you think are normal and you figure out what's going on. You get the Gaussian or the bell-shaped curve distribution and you draw two lines at minus two and plus two standard deviations and anything on either side of that would either be low or high. That's how you do it. It's a standard statistical fudge. Here's the problem. Over the last 40 years, everyone now has fatty liver disease, and they don't know it. They think they're normal, but they're not. They all have metabolic dysfunction because of the fat they have in their liver that they don't know about and their doctor doesn't know about. So they go to the lab, and the lab generates thousands of specimens, and they do the analysis, and the whole thing has been shifted to the right. And so now, that plus two standard deviations is at 40, whereas it used to be at 25 because everyone's got fatty liver disease. So the real upper limit is still 25, but that's not what it says on the lab slip. So Dr. Lustig, somebody gets their blood panel. They look at the ALT levels. It's 35. It's considered normal but it's not really normal. What do you say when you see such a patient? That's right. So if if a regular doctor saw that, they'd say, well, your ALT is normal. If I saw that patient, I'd say, look, you got fatty liver disease and you need to you know, do something about it. And the first thing you need to do is get rid of the liver fat. And there are two ways to get rid of the liver fat. And one is get rid of the sugar in your diet. And the other is alter the type and timing of your meals. So intermittent fasting, which you may have heard about, is one way to reduce that liver fat. So so your liver will burn that liver fat preferentially before it will burn carbohydrate if you are not presenting carbohydrate to it. So if you engage in what they call intermittent fasting, that is that you eat your meals within an eight-hour window, usually something like from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And don't eat before or don't eat after. This is work from Walter Longo and Jason Fung and several other uh, gastroenterologists uh, out there. They uh, This will allow your liver an opportunity to burn off that liver fat and get that liver fat down. And in the process, you're liver will work better. Therefore, your pancreas will make less insulin. You will become more insulin sensitive and you will have actually reversed the metabolic dysfunction. The most important thing is get rid of the sugar. Take the sugar, the added sugar out of your diet because that is the primary substrate for generating liver fat. 
Alcohol is number one, but we're assuming that it's not because you're an alcoholic. We're assuming it's just because you eat a standard American diet and get rid of the added sugar. And you will see your ALT plummet. You will see your insulin sensitivity improve. And when your insulin goes down low enough, you will start to see some weight loss. Dr. Lustig, a lot of people say, well, I, I don't put sugar in, in my iced tea or in my coffee. I'm, I'm pretty careful about that. But hey, this pandemic was hard on me psychologically. I've been eating a lot of mac and cheese and maybe having mm -hmm. a couple of Oreos. What's the big deal? So that's exactly what the big deal is, the mac and cheese and the Oreos. And Kraft can't keep up with the mac and cheese. They actually had an article saying that they were actually not able to supply America's insatiable appetite for macaroni and cheese. Think about that. The fact is that if you take a look at who has died during COVID-19, dem four demographic groups, the elderly, and they have their own metabolic issues and their own immune problems. And then the other three demographic groups are people of color, the obese, and people with pre-existing conditions. All of those pre-existing conditions, by the way, are the diseases of metabolic syndrome. So what ties those three demographic groups together? People of color, obesity, pre-existing conditions. And the answer is, ultra-processed food. And the reason is because it is filled with added sugar and devoid of fiber. And those two things are necessary to actually mitigate COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. And here's why. So there are three reasons ultra-processed food is bad for you in terms of this disease. Number one, Insulin, as I've talked about, insulin's the bad guy in the story for metabolic syndrome. Well, insulin's the bad guy in the story for COVID-19. And the reason is because the portal that the virus uses to inject lung cells with the virus, in other words, the infectivity, the portal it uses is a, an enzyme called ACE2, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. And that enzyme is responsive to insulin. The higher the insulin, the greater the ACE2 number. And that means that you've increased your risk for infectivity just by keeping your insulin levels high from your processed food consumption. Second, short-chain fatty acids are the breakdown products of fiber by your colonic bacteria. Those short-chain fatty acids have actually been shown to help tamp down the overwhelming immune response known as the cytokine storm, which is what actually leads most of the people in the ICU to death. So if you can manage your cytokines and keep them down by eating fiber-containing foods, which of course processed food is not, then you can mitigate a lot of that cytokine response and keep yourself you know, out of the morgue. And number three, the higher your blood glucose goes, the worse it is because it turns out blood glucose crystallizes around that portal, ACE2, and holds it open so that the virus has even an easier uh, opportunity to inject that virus and start that uh, viral uh, uh, vicious cycle and chain reaction. So 
three different ways that ultra-processed food drives COVID-19 morbidity and mortality. So, Dr. Lustig, just to sum up very briefly, we have a minute. To mitigate that, you need to eat more fiber and less processed food. Is that the solution? Exactly. That is exactly the solution. Again, you cannot solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And where do you find fiber? You find it in real food because processed food is fiberless food. Processed food has had the fiber stripped out of it on purpose for shelf life because you can't freeze fiber. I'll prove it to you. Take an orange, put it in your freezer overnight, take it out the next morning, put it on the counter, try to eat it, see what you get. It's a horrible mess. You get a horrible mess. (laughs) And the reason is because the ice crystals macerate the cell wall, let all the water rush in. And so you have mush. Food industry knows that. So what do they do? They squeeze it and freeze it. It lasts forever. Frozen concentrated orange juice. It's a commodity. They can sell it on the commodities market. No depreciation. Profit for them. Disease for you. Okay. And we are going to talk more about real food in just a minute. You are listening to Dr. Robert Lustig, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and a member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also a member of the Pediatric Obesity Devices Committee of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. He has never taken money from the food industry, so has no conflicts of interest. He's author of Metabolical, The Lure and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. We asked Dr. Lustig about the evidence linking the groups most vulnerable to COVID-19 infection to a high intake of processed foods. He sent us published research demonstrating the connection, and we've posted links to the studies on our website. After the break, we'll take another look at the hateful eight and how we can turn them into the grateful eight. How can you tell if a food will protect your liver or endanger it? Do you think breakfast is the most important meal of the day? What do you eat for breakfast? We'll compare the pros and cons of eggs versus donuts. What food will help you stay healthy and ward off metabolic syndrome? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you by the Verizona Health Club. This comprehensive home testing service enables you to track crucial health markers of gut health, inflammation, metabolism, hormones, thyroid function, and many other organ systems. Regular testing can help detect health imbalances before they lead to sickness. Online at Verizona, V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com slash health dash club. Get 50% off the first month with the discount code PEOPLE50. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. 
now with an annual health club plan. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A.com. And by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic products made in Germany. K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. What's your favorite breakfast? Raspberry yogurt or cornflakes with banana? Are pancakes with syrup your idea of a tasty way to start the day? Does a spinach omelet seem disappointing by comparison? Our guest today is Dr. Robert Lustig, a pediatric neuroendocrinologist. His brand new book is Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Dr. Lustig, you've you've laid out the, the problem elegantly. I, I want to go back to the solution because you've talked about eight critical issues, glycation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, which is, that's the energy factory of every cell. It's so critical. Insulin resistance, which we've begun to get a sense is really also critical. And then there's membrane integrity, inflammation, epigenetics, and autophagy. So the eight critical items. The real question that I have is, okay, how do we turn them from the hateful eight to the grateful eight. So every single one of those eight pathways, and I have looked at all of them, the cofactors, the co-repressors, the transcription factors, you know, involved in the mediation of all eight of those processes, none of them are druggable. There's no drug for any of them, except maybe inflammation, COX-2 inhibitors, but that's even a question mark as well. Bottom line is the only way to get inside the cell where the where you need the help is with food, but the right food. So the question is, how do you know what's the right food? And in the book, I actually tell you how those eight pathologies are mitigated or promoted by food. But I can make it really, really easy in one simple concept. Two clauses, six words. These are the six words that everyone should carry around on a index card in their wallet. Okay. And this is how you should eat because basically it's going to tell you what's healthy and what isn't. So if you go to the USDA or the FDA websites right now and look for the definition of healthy, all you get is gobbledygook. And the reason is because they don't know what is healthy. And if you go to the food industry, it's even worse because they're going to tell you everything they serve is healthy. So the question is, what really is healthy? You may remember Michael Pollan famously said seven words, three clauses. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Well, there's a problem with every single one of those clauses. Eat food? Well, processed food is, quote, food, except it really isn't. And that's the point. Uh, not too much. Uh, what does that mean? And how do you know that? And how come your body doesn't understand when enough is enough? And finally, mostly plants. You know what? Coke Doritos and Oreos are vegan. All right. So, you know, you can eat badly uh, vegan. You can eat badly keto. You can basically eat badly if you choose to eat badly, if you don't know what you're doing. So here are my six words, two clauses, and they work. Number one, protect the liver. Number two, 
feed the gut. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And the empiric data you know, that has been generated from epidemiologic and also randomized control trials support this view. Protect the liver, feed the gut. All right. Well, protect the liver from what? And how would you know that it, whether a food is going to protect your liver or attack it? I'm assuming that if it's if it's a sugar-laden beverage, it probably is not good for your liver. You've just told us that sugar can harm the liver. That'd be a good guess, Terry. <laughs> um, so sugar is the tsunami that overwhelms the liver. You are certainly not protecting it. Branch-chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, valine, go straight to the liver, get deamidated, create increased branch-chain organic acids. They end up being metabolized by the Krebs cycle. The Krebs cycle becomes overwhelmed as well, and so you throw off liver fat as well. So, And that's in corn-fed beef, chicken, and fish. In addition, heavy metals, in addition, uh, numerous other uh, uh, issues like, for instance, glyphosate and other uh, uh, pesticides, um, estrogens in the uh, food all go to the liver and cause the liver to be overwhelmed as well. So real food doesn't do that. Real food does not overwhelm the liver. Processed food does. And then on the other side, we have uh, feed the gut. Okay, why do you have to feed the gut? Well, it turns out there are 100 trillion bacteria in your intestine. There are only 10 trillion cells in your body. Your bacteria outnumber you 10 to 1. All right, well, the fact is you have to feed them because if you don't feed them, they will do everything they can to survive. What they will do is they will feed on you. They will actually eat the mucin layer right off your intestinal epithelial cells, thus increasing inflammation, creating the uh, risk for leaky gut and chances for metabolic syndrome. And of course, things like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune disease, and also generating the risk factors for cancer, dementia, et cetera. So you got to feed your bacteria. The question is, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? Now, when you consume almonds, for instance, let's say you consume 160 calories in almonds, a handful of almonds. Of those 160, how many do you absorb? Turns out the answer is 130. You ate 160, you absorbed 130. What happened to the other 30? You fed them to your bacteria? Yes, you fed them to your bacteria. Exactly right. Because the fiber in the almonds, both the soluble and insoluble, prevented early absorption of those extra calories. And so they went further down the intestine. And so the bacteria chewed them up for their purposes. You fed the bacteria. So almonds are great. In fact, nuts are great. And pretty much everyone across the board agrees that nuts are like, you know, one of the world's perfect foods. The fats are good fats. There's fiber in it. Okay. And not too much carbohydrate. So this is, I mean, uh, nuts are a really good idea. Uh, And, you know, that can be on a keto diet and that can also be on a vegan diet. 
So that's a good place to start. The fact is that the soluble fiber, so the pectins uh, and the inulin uh, that is in uh, real food gets turned by the colonic bacteria into short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, propionate. And these are both anti-inflammatory and also insulin suppressive to keep that insulin down. So you have to feed your gut what it needs in order to survive and thrive. And if you don't, what you're going to do is you're you're choosing the bad bacteria and those are going to increase inflammation. One of the other things that uh, causes the bad bacteria to uh, proliferate is the antibiotics, not just the antibiotics your doctor gave you, but the antibiotics your uh, butcher gave you. Because most of the cows, uh, most of the meat that's been uh, grown in America has been uh, raised on a CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation. And it's a, a very unsanitary and very unhappy place. And cows get sick. And in order to prevent them from getting various intestinal diseases, the uh, animal husbandry people give them antibiotics. And what that does is that pervades the meat, uh, allows the cow to survive. That's true. But in fact, uh, we end up eating those antibiotics. We end up changing our microbiome in our intestines and promote even more inflammation. So there are a lot of ways that we can protect our liver and feed our gut. But every one of them ends up coming back to real food. The point is, it's not what's in the food that matters. It's what's been done to the food that matters. And you can't figure that out from any nutrition facts label. That information is not on the label. You have to know it. And that's the reason I wrote the book. Dr. Lustig, let's talk breakfast. So Nutrition experts, they say, you know, it's the most important meal of the day. You say it's become the most dangerous. Why? Well, so first of all, who was it that said breakfast is the most important meal of the day? Everyone says that. Is it true? Okay. We take it on face value that that's the case. Is it true? Who said it? The woman who said it was the founder of the American Dietetic Association. Her name was Elena Cooper in 1917. She is the one who said breakfast was the first that was the most important meal of the day. Now, who was this lady Lena Cooper? Turns out she was the apprentice, not the dietitian, but the apprentice. She only got a high school education. She was the apprentice to none other than Dr. John Harvey Kellogg at his Battle Creek Sanitarium. Now, you may know that John Harvey Kellogg had some very interesting and unusual um, medical precepts to his practice because he thought that the two biggest problems in American society were constipation and masturbation. And he believed that meat was the cause of both. And so he advocated a meat-free diet, a basically vegetarian diet. And this, of course, fit his own religious principles as he was a Seventh-day Adventist. And so this is, of course, where Kellogg's cornflakes came from because, you know, this was breakfast. And so he 
and his brother basically nationalized their breakfast. And that became, of course, the Kellogg's uh, that we know today. And of course, because Lena Cooper was his apprentice, she said that this is when we do our best because carbohydrate makes sense for breakfast, not meat. And therefore, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. My question to you is, does any of that sound right to you? Well, what we have seen is that there doesn't seem to be any epidemiological evidence that um, breakfast is essential. Well, and what I see is a lot of kids getting ready for school, running late, grabbing cereal, maybe Cheerios, perfectly fine cereal, I suspect, but pretty carb laden and all kinds of other stuff like Fruit Loops and maybe grabbing a bagel or a donut. So I worry about all the carbs. So I'm more worried about the sugar. So Fruit Loops, 40% sugar. Donuts, 33% sugar. Remember what I talked to you about AMP kinase, this uh, enzyme mm -hmm. that controls mitochondrial burning, you're poisoning it. So even though you're taking in calories and those calories should provide cellular energy, they're not. And the reason is because the mitochondria are dysfunctional because of the sugar. And we actually have the intermediary metabolite of sugar that causes the mitochondrial dysfunction. It is called methylglyoxal. It is a, a breakdown product of glycolysis. It goes from dihydroxyacetone phosphate to methylglyoxal. And then the methylglyoxal is supposed to be metabolized by an enzyme called glyoxylase 1 to something called D-lactate. So we measured D-lactate in patients with metabolic syndrome and showed that it was extraordinarily high showing that, in fact, methylglyoxal levels were very high in patients with metabolic syndrome. And we showed that the reason was because of the sugar. And when we got the sugar out of kids' diets, their D-lactate levels fell on a dime and their insulin sensitivity improved and their energy expenditure increased. In other words, we made their mitochondria work by getting rid of the sugar. So the answer to the question is, is breakfast the most important meal of the day? And the answer is, breakfast could be the most important meal of the day if it didn't have any sugar in it. Dr. Lustig, everybody agrees that lifestyle is critically important for good health. And yet, it seems as if a lot of your colleagues kind of throw up their hands in despair. I tell people to stop smoking. I tell them to lose 15 pounds. They don't do it. There's something wrong with those patients. And, and, it, and I just, I tell you what, heart disease is the number one killer. If they just take the statin that I prescribe, at least that will save their lives. Because, you know, atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, those statins really work. And I can't get people to lose weight. Uh, you know, they're going to eat those parfaits and those ice cream sundaes. There's nothing I can do about that. But the statin will solve the problem. Yep. That is the path of least resistance, isn't it? I hear you. 
You're absolutely right, Joe. So this is the standard prevailing wisdom in modern medicine today, and it is complete hogwash. And let me try to explain to you why it's hogwash. Number one, do statins prevent death? In primary prevention studies, and there are 44 studies, turns out the um, increase in longevity provided by statins is a total of four days. You get four days out of being on a statin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Now, for secondary prevention, in other words, once you've had a heart attack and you, therefore you're self-selecting a very specific skewed population, then statins do seem to have a beneficial effect. So if you're already a heart attack patient, by no means should you be stopping your statin. In fact, you should not stop your statin until you talk to your doctor anyway. But what you need to do is you need to say to them, did you put me on the statin because you thought I couldn't control my diet? In other words, were you just taking the path of least resistance? I might want to rethink that, you know, that, that concept. But do it with your doctor's uh, uh, participation. Don't just do it on your own. Uh, I do not uh, espouse uh, you know, disobeying your doctor's orders, but you should be partnering with them. Now, the question is smoking. Nobody stops smoking. Alcohol. A few people stop alcohol, but a lot don't. Sugar. Well, turns out all of these are hedonic substances. All of these activate the reward center of the brain. They are all in the extreme addictive. So how many people do you know who, when you ask, they would say, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth? Quite a few. Lots. Lots. Maybe 20% of America, maybe more. Well, that's sugar addiction. Now, just so happens it's socially acceptable. Just so happens nobody's telling them that they need to change that. Nobody's telling them that that is going, you know, that that looks bad. You know, if you, you know, grab the extra candy bar or, you know, eat the extra Skittles out of the, uh, you know, out of the bowl. The, you know, and lots and lots of doctors and nurses and dietitians have, you know, candy jars on their desks, you know, for various reasons. The question is, is sugar addictive? And the answer is, we have done those studies at UCSF and several other people have done them. And the answer is absolutely. Sugar is addictive. Not in everyone. It's kind of the same thing as alcohol. So 40% of Americans are teetotalers, don't touch the stuff. 40% are social drinkers, can you know pick up a beer, put it down, walk away. I'm in that group. And 20% have an alcohol problem. And 10% are hardcore alcoholics. Well, it turns out virtually the same data for sugar and probably for the same reasons, because after all, how is sugar metabolized? The same as alcohol. That's why you get the fatty liver disease. The only difference between the two is that alcohol does the first step of metabolism known as glycolysis. For sugar, we do our own first step. But um, after that, the mitochondria and we've talked about mitochondrial dysfunction, the mitochondria don't know the difference. And it turns out sugar poisons mitochondria directly. And it does it by interfering with an enzyme in your cells called AMP kinase, AMP kinase, which is the fuel gauge on your cell. And so when this fuel gauge is working, 
your mitochondria are working great guns and turning all the energy into ATP and carbon dioxide, and you are a lean, mean energy machine. Uh-huh. But when your AMP kinase is not working, okay, then your uh, cell is turning all of that extra substrate, all that extra glucose or fructose into fat. And in the liver, that causes liver dysfunction. In the muscle, it causes muscle dysfunction. In the brain, it causes brain dysfunction. Uh-huh. Now, Dr. Lustig, is there any hope? Because when people are addicted, it's enormously difficult for them to make changes. Can we make changes? Oh, absolutely. The big thing is you have to, number one, you have to know that that's the problem. Because if you don't understand that that's the problem and you start feeling bad, you know, I mean, there's this thing called sugar withdrawal. I mean, if you try to go off sugar for five days, you know, you're going to basically feel pretty lousy. Um, And if you don't understand that that's expected and that's supposed to happen and that you just have to make it through to the other side and you need somebody to hold your hand while you're doing that, because basically we're talking about addiction medicine here, then you're going to be a recidivist and you're not even going to know why. And you're not even going to know why it mattered because it wasn't explained to you. I mean, what if the food industry put cocaine in the food and didn't tell you? Well, of course, Coke did have cocaine in it back when it it was first formulated, didn't it? That's right. Back in 1903, uh, the precursor to the FDA told Coca-Cola that if it wanted to go national, it would have to remove cocaine from uh, from the formula. But they still had two addictive substances in there, sugar and caffeine. You know, originally, remember, Coca-Cola had four addictive substances. It had cocaine, it had uh, alcohol, it had sugar, and it had caffeine. They had to remove the cocaine and the alcohol. And so, but it turned out sugar and caffeine was addictive enough that they were able to keep, uh, you know, keep uh, applying it and uh, increase their sales uh, till they were, of course, worldwide. So, The bottom line is that you have to look at this as addiction medicine. You have to use the same processes we use for for getting people off drugs in terms of being able to get people off sugar. There are ways to do that. I actually work with a company in Philadelphia that does exactly this um, and has a very good paradigm for it known as Simplex Health. We're very proud of it. Um, And they use all the precepts of my work to manage this. So it can be done. But if the doctor is just going to throw up their hands in disgust and say, you know, easier to give a statin, then don't expect anything good to happen. Dr. Lustig, when I was a kid, my dentist did not use the local anesthetic, and he used a drill that made my whole body vibrate. (laughs) It was not fun. He warned me when I was like five or six years of age that sugar was responsible for my cavities. And that was a pretty strong motivation to avoid it because I did not want to go through another drilling episode without local anesthetic. I mean, I didn't even know there was such a thing as local anesthetic. I just knew that whenever I had a tooth that needed fixing, it just hurt like hell. Why has that wisdom been lost? Well, once upon a time, dentists were the original anti-sugar advocates. And the reason they were was because of one man. And he is a hero in my book. His name is Weston Price. Weston Price was a Cleveland dentist 
who gave up his practice and actually traveled the world trying to understand the causes of chronic disease and in particular dental caries around the world. And what he found was that uh, any society that did not have sugar in their diet did not have dental caries. And any society that did, did have dental caries. And so he showed these data, both from an epidemiologically standpoint and a causative standpoint, and the dentists understood. And in the 1930s, dentists were the original anti-sugar advocates. However, something happened. This message got derailed. And it got derailed in in 1945. And in 1945, a study was done in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which demonstrated that the addition of fluoride to the uh, water supply cut the uh, incidence rate of dental caries in the children of Grand Rapids by 40%. And this was a great boon. And so we started fluoridating water around the country and then around the world and saw the prevalence of dental caries go down by somewhere around 30%. And this was considered a great public health win. Well, I'm not saying it's not, but why only 30%? And if you add more fluoride, you don't get more dental caries prevention. We've topped out. We've actually reached an asymptote in terms of dental caries prevention. And the reason is because fluoride is not a primary preventer. It is an adjunct. It is an adjunct to changes in diet. Do you know what is a much better uh, reducer of dental caries? Sugar reduction. If you get sugar down to below 5% of total daily caloric intake, caries virtually disappear. That's basically what Weston Price showed. So we took our prevalence of dental caries in adolescence from 46% down to 22% with fluoride. We could get it down to 1% with sugar reduction. So you tell me what the better message for dentists is. Dr. Robert Lustig, there is a tremendous amount in this wonderful book, Metabolical. Could you please sum up briefly what you hope our listeners will take away from the book and our conversation today? That's a loaded question, Terry, but here we go. There's a wasp in your attic. What are you going to do? Kill the wasp or destroy the wasp's nest? In order to solve a problem, you have to work upstream of the problem. Downstream only affects the results. It doesn't affect the cause. We have diseases that have come out of nowhere and have basically taken over our entire medical landscape, and they are breaking the bank. And none of them are amenable to medicines. And the reason is because we are working downstream of the problem. In order to fix our healthcare and our health and our environmental crises, we have to work upstream of the problem. But you can't work upstream of the problem if you don't know what the problem is. This book explains what the problem really is, and it also explains how to fix it. Dr. Robert Lustig, we are out of time. We want to thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's always 
great pleasure talking with both of you. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Robert Lustig, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology. He's a member of the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California, San Francisco, and of the Obesity Task Force of the Endocrine Society. Dr. Lustig is the Chief Science Officer of the nonprofit organization Eat Real, dedicated to reversing childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes by bringing real food into schools. His brand new book is Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. The People's Pharmacy is a co-production of WUNC. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome, now with an annual health club plan, online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. And by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic product made in Germany, K-A-Y-A Biotics dot com. When you go to peoplespharmacy.com, you can share your thoughts about today's show in the comment section of show number 1,257. If you'd like to hear a bit more from Dr. Lustig, not all of our interview would fit in the hour. So we're offering an extended podcast at peoplespharmacy.com. You can always subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. You might want to share it with a friend or family member. At our website, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.